So what a powerful passage is, a bit, a bit longer, but it's important we don't just take the name of God, take it out of context so that we understand why at this particular place in time in human history is God revealing this name. Now we saw last week in Genesis 1 that God is Elohim. <clears throat> he reveals himself as creator, as powerful, omnipotent, which means all-powerful God. He speaks everything into existence. That's who he is. That's, that's what he does. He created us for relationship. But we go deeper into that relationship as we go through the word of God. And true, there are more names of God in Genesis. But, but what we find here in Exodus 3 is this is the first time the nation of Israel really gets to meet their God. So just like you guys got to meet Linda up at the front door, and I love how she wears her name tag. Linda, don't ever stop that. I love that. So you'll get to know your name, they know your face when they meet you at the door. God reveals in Exodus 3 his personal name. So not just God, not just creator, which even as I say creator, you think far off, don't you? God shows in this passage he is powerful, but also relatable. He is personal. He's a personal God with a personal name. And Psalm 9 verse 10 tells us that those who know God's name will trust him. They trust in him. That's why we are doing this series on the names of God. Not just to fill our heads with knowledge, but to also move our hearts to know and to love God and to trust him in our day-to-day -day lives. So here's a little bit of context for Exodus and Exodus 3. Okay, so Exodus means what? If you're exodusing something or exiting something, you're leaving. You're, leaving. you're heading out. So why, why is the whole book of the Bible entitled, We're Out of Here? And it is because God has a huge plan for the people of Israel. The big picture is, hey, Israel, I am your God. I am your personal God. I want you to know me. I hear your cries. You are in slavery. I'm going to deliver you out of slavery. I'm going to take you out of the land of Egypt. And I'm going to deliver you into a land of your own where you will know me and I will be your God and you will be my people. And once they get to know God and they see the wonders that he works and he keeps his promise and he delivers them out of Egypt, then he takes them to Mount, Mount Sinai. And he speaks with them and he gives them his law. He says, this is how you have a relationship with me. This is who I am. This is the holiness. This is the justice I bring and the love that you would get to know me. And they make a covenant together, God and the people of Israel. They break it pretty quickly, but, but God makes a covenant with them. And then what does he do after he makes the covenant? He comes to live with them. And then you get to, you get to um, Leviticus, and he, he gives the instructions for, for the tabernacle. And how, how does God abide with his people in this tent? Well, that's after they make the formal commitment together. So it's all about relationship. Okay? If, if you've gone dating before, you know, first date... Maybe you know them well, maybe you don't, but I think we can all agree it takes more than one date to really get to know someone. So think of Exodus 3 as this is the beginning of something special. God's conversation with Moses holds truth for all of Israel and for us to see what God wants to do. And as our last point of context, the reason that Moses is in the desert, the reason he's watching sheep is he actually was born a Hebrew in Egypt. 
and was miraculously delivered from, from a genocide of babies um, by, by Pharaoh's hand, the king's hand, and he was actually raised up in the house of Pharaoh. But in a fit of anger, taking justice into his own hands, he kills an Egyptian taskmaster, has to flee for his life, and is going to spend the rest of his life, as he thinks, in exile, just finding the job, tending the sheep, and that's going to be the rest of my life. And here's where God meets him. And God reveals his name. Now, it's not in, most likely, it's not in your text. You might have seen the name uh, Lord in capital letters, right? Is that what you have? The uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible, I believe, actually spells out the name Yahweh. But, but in the Hebrew, it's actually not Lord. It's Yahweh. We, we, there's no vowels in, in the Hebrew. So it's, if you were to put it in the English letters, it's Y-H-W-H. And, and we don't actually know how it was pronounced for that reason because we find out in the 6,800 times in the Old Testament in the Hebrew, the Israelites revered the name of God so much and they were afraid of mispronunciation that they would actually say Adonai instead of Yahweh. And they would just say, Lord, because we don't want to accidentally mispronounce the name of God. They revere this name that much. So that's why in our English, you will see, oh, Lord. If you see a Lord in capital letters, that's God's covenant name. That's his personal name, Yahweh, as we might pronounce it. This is the same God in Genesis 1, Elohim, the creator God who has a relationship with his creator, but he gives us his name, and his name has meaning. It's Yahweh means he who is, or I am, or I am that I am. He uses them interchangeably. Um, trying, to, trying to remember this off the top of my head, but, but Yahweh and it's just Yah. He uses them interchangeably here. You'll see it three times. He says, I am that I am. Then he says in verse 14, I am has sent you. And then verse 15, Yahweh. <laughs> he, he, this, he, this is a threefold announcement. Shake my hand. If you were to say it, you know, first time meeting me, meet your God. This is who I am. This is how I want you to know me for all generations. Does all in generations include us? Do we need to know the personal name of God? God doesn't waste his breath. He doesn't speak for no reason. Get to know your God. And, and why does he reveal himself in this way? Exodus 6.3 tells us the Israelite forefathers did not have the privilege of calling God that name. This is a new revelation he is giving to, uh, to extend to the people of Israel. And here's why. Here's the, this name of God reveals three certainties for life. First of all, God stands alone. God is in a class by himself. He is self-existent, which is interesting. If you want to get to know someone personally, this name of God, it just seems like another really high and lofty name, doesn't it? How, how am I supposed to relate to a God who's self-existent? What does that mean? It means you and I have a family tree. We have an origin. I have a father and a mother. Grandparents and great-grandparents, and you can trace my lineage all the way back to Adam and Eve. I have a beginning. I have people I depend on. 
and I depend on creation. God, if you were to ask God, where did you come from? How did you get your beginning? He doesn't have an origin story like you and I. It's an impossible question for him to answer. He just says, I is, I am, I be. I did not have a beginning. I did not have a birthday. He says in Psalm 50, if I was hungry, you would be the last to know about it because I don't depend on creation. That means this morning in our simple worship service, this new church starting up or, or a bigger church across the street or any church around the world, God does not depend on anyone for his glory. God is glorious. He's in a being by himself. We have the privilege to get to know him and to worship him, that he would even care to have a relationship with us. So I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But he has no source or beginning because he is the source. I was listening to a message by a pastor named John Piper, and he was talking about how God is energy. God doesn't draw energy from anyone. He is energy himself. And as I got to know a little bit more about creation last week for, the, for our first message on God is Elohim, I learned a little bit about the laws of thermodynamics, because that's a field that is totally foreign to me. Anyone here know anything about the laws of thermodynamics? If you do, I'll pick your brain a little bit uh, later to try to make sure I understand this correctly. But the first law of thermodynamics says this. The total energy in our system, in the universe, it remains constant. Energy can change states. It can convert from one state to the other. Right? Solid, liquid, gas, heat, light. It can convert, but the energy stays the same. In other words, that nothing that you do adds energy to God's creation. So imagine the powerful source of God that made all of this. We have our balance of energy because he's just the source. He said, let there be light. Boom. And there's energy in our world because of him. So what's miraculous about that is we just read from Exodus 3, and if you're not there, I invite you to turn there with us. Moses is shepherding his sheep, just going about his ordinary day, nine to five job, although shepherding, I hear, is a little bit more involved than that. So, uh, you know, from sunup to sundown, he's keeping these sheep alive, and he sees a fire. A bush is on fire, but it's not what? It's not burning up. It's staying the same. Okay, you know, is that really that big a deal? Well, scientifically, yes, <laughs> that's a huge deal. Because the reason you have fire is because the atoms that are heating up in that fuel source, let's say, say wood, okay, that fuel source, they're heating up, and the atoms release and they turn into light. So it's light that you're seeing when you're seeing the fire, right? It's so hot, it turns into a different state but there's a bush that's burning and it's not changing its state. How is that possible? Because the one who doesn't change states, he is the energy source, is right there in the middle of that bush. This is miraculous. Is it any wonder that Moses says, all right, hold on sheep, I gotta check this out. This is something I have never seen and neither have you. And when he comes into the presence of the bush, God speaks, and he says Moses' name, Moses, Moses, 
Take off your shoes. Take off your sandals. Not just because they smell. He's been working with the sheep, although I'm sure they do. They do smell a little bit. Take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. The very fact that my presence is here revealed to you, the self-existent one, I have now sanctified, I've set apart this ground. It's hallowed ground. You're meeting with me in a holy moment. And so what does Moses do? I mean, this, this is different, isn't it? He hides his face. Verse 6, he hides his face. He was afraid to even look at God. When's the last time we had that kind of reverence or adoration or amazement at who God is? That Who are we that we should be able to come and worship him? Who are we to hear from his word? I mean, we, several of us, I mean, we have multiple copies of the Bible in our house. On our phones, how, how many apps or websites can we pull up and look at scripture at any point? Who are we? To hear from the God of all creation, the God who is, the God who exists. And Moses kisses the dirt and he just prays, like, don't obliterate me, God. I don't deserve you. So here's a God who's far off. But what has he done? He's come near. He's made himself known to his people. And so my question is, as we, as we contemplate how God reveals himself in this section have you encountered God in a meaningful, purposeful way, personal way? Or is this your parents' faith? Or this is what you heard growing up in church? Or have you personally heard God speak through his word? His spirit has connected your heart to God's heart. This is God, and I want to be my God. He's a holy God. The mission of Living Hope Church is that every single one of you and every single person in this community could personally experience the power and the presence of God in their lives. We're not here to grow a church to make me look good or to get a building and, and make our name great in this community. His name is already great. We're telling people this is who our God is. We bow the name. We don't deserve to worship him. He's a gracious God. He invites us in. And if you hear God's voice this morning, you hear him speaking through his word, I am Yahweh, I'm he who is, then make time to hear from him. Not just for 30 minutes or an hour on Sunday morning. What times and rhythms do you have set up in your life so you're hearing from God speak into your life every single day? Moses was watching the sheep. You can be folding laundry and listen to scripture while you do it. You can be working around the house. I like to put in my, my AirPods and I'm mowing the lawn and I'm listening to scripture. I'm listening to messages from the word. Of God. I'm hearing from God throughout my week and it changes my life every single time. And as we hear from God, then we discover what his will is for us. What is God's will for my life? Too many times we ask that question, but we're focusing on my life. We start with God. If he's the self-existent one, any plans I have for my life need to be wrapped up in Him. My schedule and my, my life are wrapped up in Him. And we remember that. Because as God reveals Himself to us, we first see, first of all, that God stands alone. But secondly, God cares for His people. That's the beauty of His introduction here. He's not just far off. He's also near. Look at this. Verse 7 and verses 9 through 10. 
He tells Moses this. Here's why I'm speaking to you, and here's why I'm calling you to do something with your life. I have seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I'm going to do something about it. I will deliver them. Then verse 9, Behold, the cry of people of Israel has come to me. I've, I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed. Now come, verse 10, I will send you to Pharaoh. You'll bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I hope that's encouraging to you that the God who is, he knows your situation. He knows what's going on in your life and he knows the burdens that you've been carrying. Friend, hear me. If you don't hear anything else this morning, I'm not going to pretend to be this all-knowing prophet. I know exactly what's going on in your life. I don't. But he who is knows exactly what's going on in your life and he loves you. No matter what mistakes you've made, Moses murdered a man. He killed an Egyptian. Who is he that God should be so gracious and to care for him and to care for the people of Israel? It's who God is. He can't help himself but care for his people. The God who's big and powerful says something like this. They are my people. Who's the nation of Israel? They should care about them. They're a bunch of runts. It's a little runt nation. They're the slaves. Wouldn't you want Egypt to be your nation? They're the powerful ones. They've got the army. They're building the pyramids and all that good stuff. God, why don't you choose them to be your people? No, I want to choose the runts. I want to choose the nation that has no land, that has no hope, that has no future. And I'm going to show you that I hear their cries, I hear their need and their prayer, and I am going to meet them where they are. That's our God. That's what he does. I even love how he uses our terminology to relate to us. Because does God have ears exactly like us? Does he have eyes? like? No one has seen God from eternity past. Until he revealed himself in the person of Jesus, but he's relating to us in terms that we understand. Does God hear me when I pray? That's a question I ask often. Because oftentimes his answer is no or wait. Wait a minute. Does he really hear me? He's using our terminology. Your cry is reaching my ears. I see your need. And I'm coming near. You are my people. He's so gracious. 1 John 4.19 tells us the only reason that we love it all as children of God and put our faith in Jesus is because he first loved us. He made the first move. He proposed. He initiated. He introduced himself for the purpose of a loving, intentional relationship. In fact, it tells us that Moses became so close to God in his relationship that he became God's friend. Exodus 33.11. They talked face to face. Of course, God was in a glory cloud. But face to face, Moses talked to God. And they were friends. This is God's plan. And for the fullness of time, and in the fullness of time, God the Son came down in human form to fully and completely reveal God to us to take away our sins. We just observed communion. Jesus shed his blood for us. His body was broken for us. Do you think God cares for you? He was willing to give up his son and give up his own life for your sin and for mine? Good night. What kind of God is this? That's a question we ask ourselves. And I just get more and more amazed that there's no one like him. 
Jesus even introduces himself in John 8, 56. He says, before Abraham was, I am. So that tells you, well, Jesus wasn't God. Jesus was the son of God. Oh, no, he made it very clear. Before Abraham was, so that's even before Moses' time, in the beginning, Jesus is God in human form. So when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, or we're told in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your anxiety on him. Why should I do that? Because he cares for you. He cares. He cared for Israel. He cares for you. He cares for me. And faith is, God, I see you, or at least I, I, I hear your voice and I know you care, so I trust you with my life. You're not going to trust somebody that you don't know and that you don't know has your best concern at heart. That's not our God, though. He introduces himself and he shows you that he cares. He will go to the ends of the earth. He will give up his very life. The nail scars in Jesus' hands are evidence that we can trust God with our lives. So if you're here today and you're just looking up at an insurmountable problem, I got this issue, I got this weight on my head, I got, I got concerns, I got a broken relationship, I, I got finance issues. When we look up at our obstacles, they do look insurmountable, right? Why is that? Because we are creatures. We are part of creation. And those are big obstacles to us. And rightly so, I'm not diminishing that. But look at our problems from God's perspective. The self-existent one. Can he not just materialize atoms to make money if he wants to? Can he not fill a thousand hills with cattle? He has, and done more beside. Does he not pull the storehouses of snow and hail and rain and determine when it's going to drop and when and how much? And, and he's in control of all things. Can I not give him control of my day-to-day -day life? It's insurmountable to me, but it's not to him. Have you reflected on the fact that God cares for you? <clears throat> and I've gotten there in my life that I'm struggling to entrust to God. I think if you think about it, you can probably think of one or two as well. What's that thing that keeps you up at night? What do we need to prayerfully give to God and leave in his care so we can rest in him? If you are God's people, you have that access because God is Yahweh, the self-existent living God. And here's the third thing we see. Not only is God alone, he's in a class by himself, but God also cares. And thirdly, God reveals himself through trials. God reveals himself through trials. Think with me. Why didn't God rescue Israel from even getting into slavery? Why didn't he answer their prayer the first time they asked for help? Why didn't he deliver them before Moses felt the need to take things into his own hands and he killed that Egyptian? Could God have not done that? Sure. Absolutely. But why did he wait till the situation seemed dire? It's so that he could reveal exactly who he is and how powerful he is over our circumstances. Listen to this. In Exodus 6, God reiterates to Moses, when Moses is complaining, God, it's getting harder. I talked to Pharaoh to let your people go, and, and he just told the Israelites they have to make bricks without straw. Literally gave them an impossible task, and yet they're still expected to make the same amount of bricks. You and I would crumble under that kind of pressure. And God says this, 
because of my mighty hand, not yours, my mighty hand, he will let them go. And because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will redeem you or buy you back with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God has this all figured out. I'm allowing the stakes to get higher, so you'll see me perform at a higher level and realize what I can really do. If God chose to not let us suffer or go through any trials... That sounds good, doesn't it? Nice, easy life. How much are you going to depend on God? Not even a little bit. Because you have everything, and I have everything, and all of our needs and wants are met. What do I need God for? He allows us to go through suffering so we can experience him more fully. So what we see happen here in the early chapters of Exodus <clears throat> is there's ten showdowns. And ten miracles called the plagues. Are you familiar with that? Familiar with the plagues and, and God's work against the Egyptians? So Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let God's people go. Pharaoh says, no. Okay, so, so here's what we're going to do. Okay, so, so Moses does a sign and his staff turns into a snake. But because there's supernatural warfare going on, the, the false prophets of the Egyptians, they put their staffs down and they also turn into snakes. Ooh, no. Who's going to win the showdown? Is it Yahweh God or is it these false gods that, that really are demons working behind the scenes? Because there's no other God. So then the Nile is turned to blood. Everything in it dies and it stinks. Then there's frogs, gnats, flies. The livestock die. There's boils. There's hail. Locusts come and devour all the crops. Darkness covers the land. And after every single one of these, Pharaoh appears to relent. But then hardens his heart and says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. So the tenth and final showdown, God says, this will prove who I am and what I can do. I will take the life of every single firstborn child in the land of Egypt that does not put the blood of a lamb over the doorpost. Because when I see the blood, I will pass by. I will pass over. Which is why even in our communion, I believe it's, it's unleavened bread, Right? Thinking back to the Old Testament, the Passover feast they celebrated, waiting as the angel of the Lord passed by to strike down his enemies and to release his people and let them go. See, the Israelites didn't have to lift a finger to fight the Egyptians. God fought for them. And then you really want to see how far he'll take it. Look at the crossing of the Red Sea. When they're hemmed in and there's nowhere to go. God, you're a terrible general. I mean, you backed us right up here against the water. We're going to get slaughtered. Oh, wait. Parts the sea, guides them safely through on dry ground, not wet ground, dry ground, and swallows up the mightiest army on the face of the earth behind them. They would have never seen God perform those mighty acts if everything was easy and comfortable. Yeah, just come on out. I've got a nice all-inclusive resort for you in, in Israel. It's going to be great. You don't have to worry about a thing. He allows trials in our life so we see what he can do. And what does he do? <laughs> he redeems. He protects. He, he provides manna from heaven. But there's literally no way for you to get food and drink. God provides for his people. Just like in baseball. 
I'm a Brewers fan. And I, I grew up watching the Brewers and going to their games. I, I love a good baseball game. My dad went to a Brewers game. They're playing Tampa. They might not have done so well in that game. That's how it always goes when you go when you go in person. Just be ready for it. But I love baseball because as long as the game's still going, anything can happen. It can be the bottom of the night. You got two outs against you. There's nobody on base. You're down five, six, seven runs. But anything can happen in the game of baseball. And I love it that sometimes God allows us into impossible situations. There's, I have no idea where the money is going to come from. You don't need to raise your hand, but I know all of us at some point have been there. I don't know how this is going to work out in my family. I don't know how this business is going to get going. I don't know how this church is going to get going. God, why did you call us here to something so challenging? And I don't see the, see the long-term path. We've got to walk by faith. So you can see what I can do. When I'm up to bat and it's at the bottom of the night, do you have faith to see God act on your behalf? We already know he cares. Whatever you're going through, he will deliver. And he kept his promise to Israel. He saved them that day from the Egyptians. And here's what Exodus 14 tells us. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of Yahweh used against the Egyptians. And so the people feared the Lord and they believed in Yahweh. Can you imagine being one of those Israelites that a minute ago you thought you were toast? And now you're standing on the edge of the Red Sea and you see bodies of the army floating at your feet. A helmet washes up on shore. You think that doesn't cover you with a sense of awe? My goodness, I'm following this God wherever he leads me because he is Yahweh. All my life long, he will lead me faithfully. And I want to encourage you with one final thought. God does not waste one minute of the trial that you're going through. I know we all want him to answer our prayers right away. Yes, every time. Make it easy, God. But you know, God knew even up to the minute how long Israel would be in captivity. And he didn't waste a minute of it. It says in Exodus 14. I'm sorry, Exodus 13, 4. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are going out. That's basically our month of April. It's the springtime. Exodus 12, verses 40 to 41. The people of Israel had lived in Egypt for 430 years. And on the very day that 430 years ended, the Lord's division of people left Egypt. God numbers our days, and he numbers the days of our trials. When you're in it, you feel like that trial is never going to end. It's infinite. It's limitless. I'm never, I'm never going to get this burden off my back. God has a plan. He will bring you through that valley. It's not infinite. If he's the infinite one, then what is that problem? Finite. So trust him. See him work through it. You might not see the finish line today or tomorrow or the next day, but I promise you, the end of that trial will come. And there's some burdens and griefs we will carry with us to the grave. There'll be some people that you're praying for or that you're hoping for, you're trying to fix, or some things that you wish would be fixed in yourself. You will take that to the grave. But if you're a child of God, you will see him. And your earthly trials will be over. And yet, he can still work in the lives of the people who are still left on earth. He doesn't need you. And he doesn't need me. 
The days of our trials are numbered. What an amazing God that we have. Is there anyone like him? He is alone. He's in a class by himself. He's so powerful. He could rip us to shreds without even a word. And yet he cares for you. He cares for me. He wants you to know that he loves you. And he invites you into a relationship by the blood of Jesus. So this morning, if you haven't not only understood the name of God or got to know God, but have you put your faith in God, the one true God, Son Jesus whom he's sent to save us from our sins.